Grab your Bibles and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, every sermon is unique and different. And uh, this sermon is unique because I'm actually preaching um, on part of one verse. I'm not even preaching on a full verse. It's just part of one verse, and the whole sermon's coming from the part of the verse. But don't get your hopes up. This is going to be a feature-length presentation. You will get a full sermon for your dollar this morning. It's coming at you. We're going through 1 Timothy, and the series is called The Front Lines of Faith. We're talking about what's worth fighting for in the church, what God wants us to stand up for, to defend, to watch over in the church. And here we are, we're talking in chapter 3 about uh, specifically the qualifications for elders and leaders, but by extension, you're finding out the kind of Christian God wants to make of you. In other words, these are qualifications for leaders, pastors, elders, overseers, but these qualifications apply to every Christian in the church. Because the leaders serve as examples to the flock. So this is for you, this is for me, this is for everyone in the room. Now before we get into the topic for the day, uh, two weeks ago when I was preaching, I shared with you that uh, many of you don't even know who our elders are. And um, you got to hear Ken Henley's story two weeks ago. And this morning I'd like to begin by just sharing with you Mike Kiowski's story. He's also one of our elders. And we're going to play his testimony video for you right now. Before my senior year in college, um, I was working in the emergency room in a hospital. And uh, as I was driving to work that day, um, a car rolled up from, to a stop sign in front of me, and yet it rolled through the stop sign. And as it drove through the stop sign, I ended up hitting the car. And that day I ended up going to work in an ambulance, as well as to the person in the other car, an elderly gentleman. The next morning, the insurance company asked us if we would go to the courthouse to find out if he was ticketed because they needed that information. And when we got there, uh, the clerk told us that she couldn't release any information because someone had died. There was a fatality in the accident. That moment, my uh, heart sank and I felt crushed. Didn't know what to think. Didn't know what other people would think of me, how they would see me if they'd think I was a murderer. After the accident, I felt very angry with God because I felt like he was the one who had allowed it. And because of that, he had condemned me because I could never do enough good to make up uh, for what I felt I had become, a murderer. I became so angry that I decided I needed to find out who this God was. And so I searched our house and I found a Bible. And as I began to read the Bible, I found out that he was God who loved me and forgave me. And as I continued to search and find out, I wanted to find out more, so I began to listen to the radio. And the only station I could find was a black gospel station. And as I began to listen, I heard the preacher present the gospel message. And uh, that night, I knelt beside my bed, and I prayed and received the Lord as my Savior. That night, I came to know the Lord. I'm certain if you were in the room, you would have seen the weight that fell from my shoulders. And how much I realized that... Uh, that I didn't need to do good things to earn God's favor or to work out the balance, but that this God loved me just who I was. I realized at that point that I could then love him in return and I could do things for him 
and I could change the way I lived. And um, so he began to strip those things away from me. All the other behaviors that I had and drinking, he just began to erase that and take it away. And uh, he just continues to do that. He just continues to allow me those moments when I can care for and to serve him and express my love for him by what I do, not because I have to, because I'm earning something, but because I love him. And I want to do everything I can to show and express that love back to him. And I'm so thankful that through that, he gives me opportunities to serve in church and at my job and in other places too. I'm so thankful that I get to serve in the children's ministry and in my home group and uh, even as an elder here at church. Um, it's an honor to be, able, to be able to do those things and it's a blessing to be able to do and to give back to God who's given me so much, who's given me my life when I had felt condemned. And uh, what a blessing that is. God has done an amazing work in the heart of each one of our elders. And uh, as you get to hear their stories, there's one more Mike Brooks that you're going to hear. Uh, I trust that you'll see these are men of God um, who have terrible pasts, who God has redeemed. Um, and God has done a great work in their heart. Uh, and therefore, we have hope that God can do a great work in our heart. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together for this morning's message. Father, thank you for Mike Kiowski as he serves as an elder here for the story you've written in his life. Lord, and what a hopeless place he found himself in, and yet the light of the gospel shone in his heart, opened his eyes to see your grace. I pray that you would bless us, Lord, as we learn about elder leadership and about the qualifications for leaders together as a church over the next few weeks, but also show us your design for our own discipleship. Show us exactly what you are trying to make us into. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, are you there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2? Are you there? You got it open? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. We talked about a couple weeks ago about how this chapter is giving us an overview of elder qualifications. It says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or pastor or elder must be above reproach. Above reproach means you can't easily grab hold of a disqualifying trait of this person. Um, And each of the qualities that follow this define what it means to be above reproach. So it says he must be above reproach, and then here's the first description of what that means. It says the husband of one wife. The whole sermon is going to be on that phrase, the husband of one wife. In the Greek, it actually reads one woman man. One woman man. A man of one woman. And I want you to write this down. The main idea this morning is this. Guys, God wants me to be a one-woman man. And ladies, you could write this down too. God wants me to be a one-man woman. Where does spiritual leadership start? How do I know if somebody could be a great leader, ministry leader, small group leader, pastor? How do I know? Maybe you've wondered, could I be a small group leader? Could I lead a ministry team in the church? Could I ever be a pastor? Would they ever ask me to be a deacon or an elder? Maybe you've wondered that. First thing we would ask is this, how's your marriage? Because spiritual leadership starts in the home. It doesn't matter how you're leading your business. It doesn't matter how you're doing at work. It doesn't matter your relationships outside of the home. The first and most 
fundamental place where you lead is in your home. And that starts with your marriage. And God wants leaders in the church, elders in the church, to be one-woman men. It's God's design that marriage would consist of one man and one woman for a lifetime. And maybe you've heard people say, oh, marriage just kind of came up at some point in the Middle Ages. You know, it was something that people thought up. No, marriage started in the Garden of Eden when God was the one who brought the first bride to the first husband and joined them together. It was God's idea. In fact, the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve and ends with the marriage of Christ to his bride. Marriage is so highly honored in the Bible, and therefore it is a qualification of of every leader, and it's also God's design for every believer who gets married. I've heard one person say this, He who loves one woman loves them all, but he who loves all women loves none of them. It's, It's the focused love that a man can give to one woman that shows how much he respects his God and every other woman. But it's the unfocused, uncommitted love that a man would give to many women that shows he really doesn't love any of them. He only loves himself. God's plan is for you to become a one-woman man. Jesus affirmed this in Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, where he said this. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is God's thing. He thought it up. He created it. And when you got married and stood before the Lord and said your I do's, something bigger than a legal transaction happened. A holy God somehow made two into one. There's a unifying spiritual element that only God could bring to that union so that the two become one. God sees you as one. Uh, In that is the mystery of the Trinity. How can three persons be one God? How can God be love? Well, God is plural in that there are three persons, and God is singular in that those three persons are united by the bond of love. Therefore, marriage shows the love of God, in that two people would make a covenant of love, a commitment to each other, and become one for the rest of their lives. It's really a beautiful thing. And yet, in our world, this idea of one man and one woman for life is completely being dismantled. Have you ever heard someone say, well, things are different now than they used to be. The world is different now than it used to be. And then have you heard somebody say, that's not true. Our grandparents just don't remember it correctly. It's always been this way. In fact, it's better than it's ever been. Well, allow me to share a few stats with you. If you're a stat person and you like statistics, you're going to love this sermon. I don't always go there. I'm suspicious of stats. I don't share them all the time. But I need to show you that times have changed. Get this. In 1960, 70% of adults were married. Today, 50% of adults are married. What does that mean? It means less people are deciding to get married. Less people now than ever before are deciding marriage is the way that they're going to express and enjoy that love with the person who they're with. There are also about 2 million marriages each year in the U.S. and about 1 million divorces per year. About 2 million people, plus a little bit, get married every year in the U.S. About 1 million people get divorced in the U.S. Well, is that the way it's always been? No. 
In the year 1900, there were three divorces for every 100 marriages. Today, there are about 50 divorces for every 100 marriages. Uh, Most of these stats are coming from the Center for Disease Control, government-instituted research. These are very highly credible um, numbers that I'm sharing with you. Did you hear what I just said? In the year 1900, there were three divorces per year for every 100 marriages per year. Now, there are 50 divorces per year for every 100 marriages per year. Would you agree with me that things have changed? Would you agree with me that when it comes to marriage, the fact that there's only 50% of adults um, now who are currently married versus 70% of adults who got married in 1960, that things have changed. Far more people are getting divorced. Far fewer people are even getting married. And far fewer people are staying married. You have to understand, therefore that the world you've been born into, the United States of America you've been born into, the culture around you is very abnormal when it comes to marriage. What you hear about marriage, what you hear about divorce, what you see about marriage, what you see about divorce is very abnormal. It's not only abnormal in our country, it's abnormal throughout history in all countries. You live in a very strange time that doesn't uphold marriage. It's unusual. And you have to understand that so you don't think this is the way it's always been or this is normal or this is better than it was before. You have to have the facts so that you know if that's true or not. Do you know the United States is second only to China in the number of divorces that happen each year? Silver medal. Silver medal in divorce. Do you know only half of marriages in the U.S. will last 20 years? Only half. Marriage is being dismantled. It's being um, put off. It's being avoided um, in our culture around us. God's plan is one man, one woman for life. Our culture is trying a different plan. Our culture is telling you to try a different plan. And they're trying as hard as they can to show you that it's a better plan, but they are completely failing to prove that in any way. They are completely failing to show you that their plan is better than God's plan of one man, one woman for life. Less people are getting married, more people are getting divorced. What does that mean for leadership in the church? It means that there's a crisis because there aren't nearly as many men who are rising up to this holy standard and displaying for others the virtue of biblical marriage. Um, And even those people who got married sometimes go through painful divorces, often unbiblical divorces, creating problems with their qualifications for leadership. Well, What does that mean if I'm single or divorced or remarried? What does that mean when it comes to leadership? Well, what I would say is this. This verse is in the Bible to set the standard and show God's ideal. It doesn't mean that single men are disqualified from becoming elders or leaders or pastors. It's not like you have to be married to one person in order to become an elder. It's just saying those people who are married need to be one, a one-woman man. Now, if you're single, if you're unmarried, God wants you to have a heart to become a one-woman man. He wants you to be a one-woman boyfriend. He wants you to be on the hunt for that one woman who you will promise your life to. And he doesn't want to treat, he doesn't want you to treat many women as if they are that one woman. And ladies, if you're single, let me just say this. God wants you to find the guy who's going to treat you like he'll treat no other woman on the face of the earth. He wants you to be special. God wants you to find the man who will devote himself to you for the rest of his life 
settle for nothing less. It's God's plan. But single men could serve as elders or pastors. There's a problem in the early church, in the early world here with polygamy, people marrying more uh, than one person. There was also infidelity. Even if they were married to one person, they would have people on the side, women on the side, who they could go out and have sex with. So that was kind of socially acceptable. Not in the church. Here the standard is one woman man. We have to have elders and leaders who are setting the example of the church so that the church will be filled with men who are only for one woman. What about if I was remarried or divorced? Um, Not all divorces are unbiblical. Not all divorces are sin. There are actually two cases in the Bible where divorce is allowed. In one, um, physical adultery. Make sure you hear me clearly here. Physical adultery, meaning your spouse actually had sexual relationships with another person. Sometimes I hear people trying to force, oh, well, he looked at porn and that's spiritual adultery, therefore I'm free to go. No. Physical, went with another woman, did sexual things. That gives you biblical grounds for a divorce. Um, And suspicion of that is not enough to give you the get out of marriage free card. It has to be confirmed. There's also another qualification for a biblical divorce. It's when you're a believer and you're married to a person who's not a believer and the non-believer leaves, deserts you, divorces you. Then you are free to get remarried. That was a biblical divorce, all right? But it has to be the non-believer who initiates it and leaves, okay? It's not the Christian. It has to be the non-believer who does that. The only other way that you're free from the marital bond is if your spouse passes away and then you're free to remarry. Um, Therefore, the Bible holds that bond, that promise that you make in very high regard. When you stand before God and witnesses and you promise till death do us part, God holds you to that oath. And there are very, very few circumstances where it's God's will that you would be released from that bond and that promise and that vow that you've made. When the disciples heard this, they were like, who can keep this thing? Why would we even get married? And Jesus is like, yep, that's right. It's a very serious thing. Um, If a man has been biblically divorced and biblically remarried, he would actually still be eligible to serve as an elder. Um, Or if a man went through a divorce before he was a Christian, okay? In Christ, he's a new creation. Um, So there are some instances where something that happened before you became a Christian still has um, present implications. Maybe the relationship is like, very volatile. Maybe the kids are totally against you. Maybe there's financial problems and lawsuits. All of that could encumber a guy from becoming an elder. But um, we don't just say, oh, you've been divorced, can never be an elder. Uh, We don't say that. So remarriage sometimes uh, still allows for a person to become an elder. Um, Let's talk about homosexuality. The world is giving you another plan for marriage, redefining marriage. Um, It's legal in Illinois now for a man and a man, a woman and a woman to officially get married. Um, I have preached a whole uh, sermon on homosexuality, what we believe about that. So please, if you want to know exhaustively what I think or what I've said, go to the website and search for that sermon. I don't have enough time to get into it here. But as we're dealing with qualifications for leaders, what I would say is this. God wants leaders, elders, pastors, overseers who are one-woman men, uh, which means um, pursuing the homosexual lifestyle and even um, making a vow um, to get into a homosexual marriage automatically disqualifies a person from being a leader, a pastor, a preacher in a church. In addition, it calls into question their own salvation because in the eyes of the Lord, they're persisting willfully in sin. That's not God's plan. That's not God's design. 
It's not what God has for that person in life. Certainly not if the person left their wife and broke the vow they made before God to get into this other relationship. That's not something that the Bible allows for. All right. Again, I've said much more about homosexuality and how we're supposed to interact with them and love them and share truth with them uh, in a different sermon, but I need to cover that here because you need to know that it is a disqualifier when it comes to leadership in the church. Um, one last thing, the Bible calls upon Christians to marry Christians. So maybe you are a one-woman man, but you've married a non-believer. Um, that, that would probably be a disqualifier as far as becoming an elder. And I just need, um, you know, all of the college students, the high school students, sometimes people come to us and they're like, we're getting married. And we find out that the believer is getting married to a non-believer and then we have to share some shocking news to them. So I'm going to share the shocking news to you now so you're not shocked later. If you choose to go ahead and get married to a non-believer, you're doing so against what the Bible counsels you to do. And most evangelical pastors will not marry you. You'll have to go outside of the church to get married because we believe that's not God's will for you. You need to hear that now so that you're not shocked by it after you've got a ring on your finger. God's will for you is clearly spelled out. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about a woman, and it says she's free to remarry only in the Lord. Meaning God's will for you is that you would find someone who shares your faith to get married. Go and look for that. Find that. Because how can you really be in love with someone who doesn't love your Lord? and isn't heading where you are forever, all right? Sometimes people will say, well, what if he changes? I can change him. Change him before the ring is on your finger. See if that works. Otherwise, the Lord's will is that you would find someone who shares your faith. All right, well, all that is very technical, but um, if that's God's standard, if that's what God wants for us, here's the next question. How then do I display single-minded devotion to one woman? If that's what God wants, how do I do that? Well, you can write that down. How do I display single-minded devotion to one woman? Let me talk first to single men. Uh, single men, write this down, maintain a pure pursuit of love. Maintain a pure pursuit of love. Um, God wants you to be a one-woman man before you have found that woman. And he wants you to be on a hunt for that special person. He doesn't want you to be using many women in your search. Are you dating to find the one or are you dating to use the many? God wants you to be a one-woman man. You know, if you're single, you're probably somewhat frustrated, especially if you're, you know, out of your teens into your 20s. You're like, come on, Lord, this is taking longer than I thought. Again, you have to actually wake up to what's going on in the culture around you. Less people are choosing to get married, which means the pool of people who are sharing your desire to go and get married is smaller. In addition, people are waiting later to get married. The uh, median age for first marriages have never been higher. Uh, brides are 26 and grooms are 28 for their first marriage. 26 and 28 is the median age. That's the middle, which means it's a little older, a little younger, but 28, 26 is the age, which puts you in a frustrating place where you have to wait often until you get married. It's not customarily that way throughout history. In Bible times, 13, 14, 15, you're hitched, right? You live in a culture that's kind of different and unusual when it comes to marriage, which means you're forced to wait on the Lord and you'll experience great temptation while you do. Many people give up hope or they compromise. Many people will just say, well, I'm just going to move in and, and try and find out if this is the one to try and hustle things along. In fact, here's some stats. By age 20, one in four women have lived with a man who's not their husband. By age 30, three in four women have lived with a man. More and more people are choosing to simply live together and try it before you buy it than actually go forward and get married. Um, 
They're trying a different plan. That's not God's plan. A 2003 Gallup survey tells us what teenagers thought. Um, You know, this was obviously over 10 years ago, so these people are now acting out these beliefs, um, but found 7 in 10 teenagers thought cohabitation is morally acceptable. Of those teens who were surveyed, those who had been to church within the past seven days, 50% agreed. Now we're 10 years after that, which means these teenagers are now making life partnership decisions. And guess what? They're choosing not to get married. They're choosing to wait longer and they're choosing to shack up before they get married. They're trying another plan other than one woman for life. They're trying another plan. And ask this, uh, is it a better plan? Is it a better plan? Well, um, if a man says to you, why don't you just move in with me? Is he doing a loving thing for you? If, if a man says, why don't I just move in with you? Is he taking the next step in showing you love? No. No, he's not. What he's essentially saying is, I prefer the option of life without you over the promise of life with you. Why don't you put a ring on the finger and marry her? Because I prefer the option of life without you more than the promise of life with you. It's not loving. It's selfish. It's selfish to move in with someone and to not go through and get married with them. It's completely self-serving. He can leave and never text you again. He can just not pick up the phone. That's not a loving relationship. Therefore, God's way is better and the world's way is worse. God's way gives you security. The world's way gives you lack of security. And yet the world tries it. A Gallup poll in 2006 said 79% of young adults say premarital sex is morally acceptable. It's almost 8 in 10. Is it working? If, If young adults and teenagers think multiple partners before marriage, not the full commitment of marriage, is better, is it working? Is it leading them to happier places, stronger relationships, healthier marriages? Um, No. A national survey of over 16,000 high school students said 46% of students have had sex before marriage. 34% were currently sexually active. All right, where's that leading? Well, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that 10,000 teenagers are infected by an STD every day. Did you hear that? I preached that once before and somebody came up to me after the sermon and said, that has to be wrong, that can't be right. I was like, go look it up, government study. Looked it up, came back the next day, it's true. I said, it's not only true, it's a low estimate because not everyone goes in to get treatment. 10,000 teenagers will go to bed today with an STD they didn't have in the morning. 10,000 thousand every day. Is it working? It's not even working on their body. It's creating a worse body after they do this, let alone their heart and their mind and their soul. One out of every four sexually active teens already has an STD. Let's talk about not teenagers. Let's talk about the whole population. There are 20 million new cases of STDs each year in the U.S. That's 54,794 today, 54,794 tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after. It is an epidemic. One-third of Americans has an STD. That's just what it does to your body, let alone your mind, let alone your heart let alone your soul. Better plan? Certainly not a healthier body. 
Certainly not a healthier economy. The lifetime cost of treating 20 million new infections a year for the is $16 billion. Are you frustrated with how high your insurance premiums are? $16 billion to treat all these new cases every year of STDs. Is it good for the economy? Is it good? No. Is it good for my wallet? No. Is it good for my body? No. What is it good for? The answer is nothing. Multiple partners, lack of commitment before marriage leads to physical pain and suffering. These aren't just like the little STDs that go away after a week. These are like cervical cancer causing the top two can be fatal, lifelong, share it with your marriage partner, life-altering because you're not doing it God's way. Listen, next to faith in Christ, the best choice you can make is to save sex for marriage from this day on. And anyone who tells you otherwise simply doesn't know the facts. It's not a better way. God's way is a better way. God wants you to have one woman for life. Men, God wants you to be a one-woman man. And there's no evidence you can prove to show me that the world's way is better. It leads to relational pain. It leads to tremendous sense of betrayal. It leads to total lack of security. It leads to financial ruin. It leads to your, the ruin of your health. It's worse in every way. And yet God's way isn't followed. So single men, hey... However long it takes, maintain a pure pursuit of love. And I would also say this to single guys. Sometimes guys who are single get all frozen up in their head about this whole like, well, maybe God gave me the gift of singleness and I shouldn't even want. I'm just going to wait and not even look around in case I'm going to make God mad by dating. Hey, very, very, very few people have this lifelong gift of singleness. In fact, I'll say this, practically no one has that. Even in the Bible, people who are called to singleness, it's usually a season of singleness. It's not a lifelong sentence to singleness. So don't let that in any way inhibit you from going out and trying to find that person who you deep down want to find. Don't let that in any way slow you down. If God wants you to be single, he'll make it abundantly clear and he'll help you to arrive there. All right, let's move on to married men. Write this down. Married men, what does it mean to be a one-woman man once you've already got a woman? Well, Maintain a sacrificial, passionate pursuit of love. Jot that down. You've got to maintain it. Somebody once said, in marriage, the way to fight off sexual temptation is this. Fight fire with fire. Meaning, light the biggest possible passionate fire you can in your home, and then nobody else will be able to hold a candle to that. It's your job to stoke the flames of love and romance and intimacy and passion with your wife. Maintain the passionate pursuit of love. Maintain it. Um, hey, when's the last time you went on a date with your wife? I talk to guys all the time who are like, oh, it's not in the budget, don't have the money. Do you know how much a divorce attorney costs? <laughs> it's a better financial decision to drive your marriage over a cliff. The first phone call from a divorce attorney is worth a year's worth of dates. So women, permission granted. Pastor Ryan said we're going on a date this week. Amen? Amen? What about child care? We can't find child care. We've got a church full of teenagers and college students who would love to be paid to watch your children. Don't make excuses. Get out there and take your wife out and show her how much you love her. I would also say this, no porn. Can I talk straight with you? No porn. Uh, have, you had, have you had the joy of experiencing your first week without porn since you first started using it? Many men have not. What about your first month of freedom from the guilt? What about your first year of total freedom? What about your first five years, ten years, fifteen years free 
of using it at all. Have, are you there? I'm there. Are you there? Do you know the victory you can have in Christ? But listen, if you don't tell another man eye to eye where you're at with it, it'll never get better. Sin, repent, repeat. Sin, repent, repeat. Sin, why can't I ever shake? Because you're not telling another man to hold you accountable. All right, and don't run to your wife. She's not your accountability partner. Tell a man who will actually talk strongly to you and warn you that you're ruining your marriage. You should only have eyes for one woman. And whatever, whatever you give to those fake fantasies online, you're stealing from your wife. And it's putting out your fire for her. I'd also say this, no special friendships with other women. Oh, we go out to lunch at work. It's just, she's just a friend. Yeah, no special one-on-one friendships with another woman. Don't do it. Don't do it. It only leads to bad places. Listen, guys, if you are going out one-on-one with another woman and telling her how you feel about your life, telling her how hard your week was, telling her some of the things you're dealing with in your marriage, you are giving her an explicit look at your heart. You are showing her porn. You are showing her the, the equivalent of nude images of yourself because women are wired relationally. You are showing her sensual images of your heart and giving her a look into your soul that only your wife should have. You're tempting her. And she doesn't deserve that access into your heart. Your wife does. If you're meeting with a girl, telling her so much, and it's special and helpful, you're being deceived. You're being lured off. It's a trap, and it's not going to take you to good places. You think an affair starts in the bedroom? No, it doesn't. It starts with a text. It starts with coffee. It starts with a bond that is formed. Before you know it, you're swept away. Proverbs 5, 20 to 23 says, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. Hey, listen, men. Maintain a sacrificial, passionate pursuit of love in your marriage, and God will not let you down. All right, let me talk to adulterous men. Write this down. Adulterous men, repent and confess your sinful pursuit of lust. Adulterous men. No question in a room of this size, in a church with this many people, there are men who've either had an an adulterous affair and not confessed it, or they're in one right now. Let me talk to you. Let me talk to you. Let God talk to you. There is a promise of judgment. There's a promise of forgiveness. Your choice. Judgment guaranteed. Forgiveness offered. You pick. The book of Revelation, there was a woman who was sexually immoral in one of the churches, and God said, I've given her time to repent, but time ran out. Now I will throw her onto a bed of suffering. Her children shall die. God is right now planning your painful, miserable season of judgment. You're not getting away with it. He offers you forgiveness for a time. He promises you judgment. Which are you going to take? You have to repent. You have to confess your sinful pursuit of lust. God will find you out, but he'll forgive you. He can save your marriage. He can rebuild your credibility. If you hide it, if you deny it, it'll rot your soul. Psalm 32, 1-5, written by an adulterous man named David, said this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my soul, my sin. You've got to confess it. I was at a caribou coffee when I was a youth pastor, getting my little message ready for the teenagers that day, out in Wheaton, writing my message. And there was this couple behind me. They're being obnoxious. You ever sit next to an obnoxious couple? They're being all lovey-dovey. Oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. I'm like, blah. <laughs> Be quiet over there. I'm trying to write my... Well, well then I... They start talking. They're giving each other gifts. I got this Valentine's gift for you. And they're planning out travel. We're going to go to Hawaii next. We're going to meet at the airport. And then, and then the guy said, I almost got caught last night. My kids were there when you called. And I was like, <sighs> So I stopped writing and listened. <laughs> I felt sick. I almost got caught yesterday. My kids were in the room. I had to hang up. Where are we going to go next? We'll meet at the airport. We'll go to Hawaii. Oh, we're going to go to Italy. Let's go to Italy. Here's a gift. Love you. I felt filthy. I felt like I should do something, right? I was like, he has to do something. I should have stood up and been like, I'm with the television show Cheaters. Hidden camera here, hidden camera here. Your wife's out in the van watching. Do you have anything to say to her? Speak into the microphone. And then just... <laughs> Next time. I felt filthy. I felt sick. I couldn't work anymore. I had to leave. I'd never been that close to two people who were about to tear apart their families for a lie, for less. Um, hey, if that's you, it's time to make it right now. It's time to come clean now before God judges you for it. Let me talk to people, divorced men, remarried men. You can write this down. Divorced men, rebuild a biblical, pure pursuit of love. Rebuild a biblical, pure pursuit of love. Every case, Maybe you're going through a divorce right now. Every case is different. But let me say this. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Did you hear that? Divorce does not ruin God's plan for your life. You, you can have God's favor on you as a follower of Christ, forgiven and loved, and you can have God map out a great future for you if you turn to him. Some divorces are unbiblical. If you're going through an unbiblical divorce, you need a lot of help to try and save your marriage before it's over. And what I want you to say is this, I will do anything that it takes to save my marriage. Say it a thousand times. I'll do anything, whatever it takes, to save my marriage. That should be your attitude if you're going through an unbiblical divorce right now. Maybe you have biblical justifiable grounds for divorce. Do you know God's plan A is that you would still try and work that out and stay married? God's plan B is that you should work it out and stay married. God's plan C and D and E and F by far is that you would trust Him to fix your marriage. God's plan Z is maybe you should get divorced. Even then, you should get help from a pastor and elder and get tremendous advice. Either way, you're trying to rebuild a biblical, pure pursuit of love. 
If you went through an unbiblical divorce and there's still the opportunity to reconcile with your spouse, a biblical way to do that, you should, you should get somebody to help you go for that. If a biblical reconciliation is not possible, if they moved on and married someone else or you're remarried, you should get some wisdom to make sure that you've repaired that relationship to the very best of your ability. The Lord will bless you if you're a peacemaker. Some of these choices will perhaps rule you out for becoming an elder and overseeing the church, sometimes depending on the circumstances. But listen, God can still be pleased with you. You're never totally out from being able to live a life that honors Him and fulfill His plan for you. Okay? You can still serve Him and love Him. You can still know His blessing is upon you no matter what happened in your past. Divorced men rebuild a biblical, pure pursuit of love. That means forgiving your spouse. That means loving your spouse. That means loving one another, working together, being gracious, and letting God fix the two of you. Rebuild a biblical, pure pursuit of love. Here's the last one. Leaders, let me just challenge our leaders. It starts with us. Model pure and passionate Christ-like love for your spouse. If God envisions a church filled with strong marriages, steady promises, sacrificial men, loving one woman, till the day they die, it starts with the leaders. We have to set that example and settle for nothing less. We have to go for that if we're going to inspire God's people to go for that. So our small group leaders, our ministry leaders, our pastors, let me, our elders, let me just say this. Set the example through loving um, your wife. Establish love and passion and devotion for your wife and do it so that other people can see it. Talk about your wife when other people aren't around in a highly favorable way. Tell the next generation how great it is to be married. Often they don't see positive examples and they don't believe that it's going to lead them to happy places. You have to set the example. And in your small group, don't be afraid to go there and ask about the strength of marriage. Maybe it's not going to be with everybody around, all right? But even when you're one-on-one with the guys in your group, say, hey, how's your marriage? How's it going? And don't be afraid to even probe and say, I mean, like, how's your intimacy? Are you guys in a good place? Do you have some baggage? I don't need all the details, but how are you doing in this area? How are you doing in your victory over porn? I mean, we need to go there. And we need to go there because we know God's going there and He wants us to strengthen this area in our church. If you spot couples in need, it's time to offer help as soon as possible. All right, It's not like three elders have to show up at their house tomorrow night. But we've got to get them to a strong, healthy spot. And don't be afraid to involve pastors or get advice. Be discreet, be wise, but let's create strength in that area. And always be redemptive and always be encouraging because there is always hope. There's always hope. Never just condemn, never just judge, never just lay out negativity. Always give hope for victory and love and restoration. And listen, as we close here, I know that we've, in sharing this message, it, it digs up a lot of emotions because this came at everybody from a different angle. And I just want to say this. God's will for you, men, is that you would be a one-woman man. Wherever you've been in this issue in the past, Today, here on, God wants you to commit to being a one-woman man. If you failed, He can redeem you. If you have hurt your wife, she can forgive you. There is hope, but we have to commit to this and we have to let God strengthen us in this area. Then we'll have strong marriages that produce strong children. Then at the very core of our church, we will have a strength among our leaders that can't be stopped by the enemy. There'll be joy 
There'll be health. There'll be happiness. There'll be security. And God's blessing will be all over it. That's what we're going for. Till death do us part. Let's pray. Father, everything that I just preached is being counteracted by the world. So many different messages are reaching our teenagers. Father, they are trying every other way except the way that is laid out from the beginning in Scripture. And Jesus, we thank you that you love your bride, the church, with an everlasting love. What an amazing example we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Never will you leave us, never will you forsake us. Help us to have that same love and affection. I pray for the single men that they would rise up in strength and gain victory over the enemy. That they would stand in defiance of their culture, pure even though they're made fun of, devoted to you. May you bless them, Lord, if you bring along someone who they can marry. Give them patience. Father, I pray for the men in our church who are married. May they renew in their own heart the vows they made before you. May they be passionate in their devotion to their wives and may they have eyes for no other. Give them strength. Pray that you would fill their heart with joy. Love is a flame that does not need to go out because it comes from God. I pray that that would be true in their own heart. Father, for those who have gone through the pain of divorce, perhaps remarriage, help them to learn that you will not condemn. You'll forgive. You're interested in the marriage they're in right now and you want to bring them all the joy and the peace found in Christ that, you, that they can imagine. Help them to turn to you. Help them to take care of anything in the past that hasn't been repented and to find all the joy that you have for them in Christ. Make this church strong, Lord, first in the home. We give this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.